Has that ever been more true? But that very Spirit, the Holy Spirit, intercedes with us with sighs too deep for words. Uh, This morning, we're beginning a new study series on the Lord's Prayer. We'll be spending a few weeks just really meditating uh, on the Lord's Prayer. And um, this morning's sermon title, and I don't often point this out, but I will today. This morning's sermon title is Too Deep for Words. Um, This is a beautiful line, really, by the Apostle Paul, acknowledging our weakness, acknowledging the reality that Paul says we don't know how to pray as we ought, which is really remarkable for Paul to say that because his letters are peppered with, I'm praying for you, would you pray for me, Uh, let's pray for each other. I mean, all over his letters, there's all kinds of indications of prayer. The Apostle Paul's expectation uh, is that the believers he's writing to are nearly, well, in fact, in one place he does say pray without ceasing, so constantly in prayer. He himself remarks often about his his own prayer. all that put together makes it sound like an awful lot of prayer going on. And yet here we have this in Romans 8. Uh, we don't know how to pray, Paul says. Not just y'all don't know how to pray. He says we, none of us, all of us, none of us know how to pray. But the Spirit intercedes with us uh, with sighs too deep for words. Um, the Lord's Prayer is maybe the most well-known prayer in the world. In fact, I want to say It is the most well-known prayer um, in the world. It's also called the Our Father by many Christians all over the world. Uh, Designate this prayer as the Our Father. Um, And once again, before we get to the Lord's Prayer itself, I want to stick with the Apostle Paul for just a moment. This is really stunning. In that same chapter, Romans chapter 8, in the the verses before, um, uh, Paul writes this. He says, when we cry, Abba, Father... It is that very spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Um, It's remarkable to think about this, and and we'll spend some time in in coming weeks um, uh, expanding on this. But it's remarkable. Paul writes twice, once in Galatians and once in in Romans. this idea that, that we as believers, that we are crying, Abba, Father. He writes that same, that same thing. Uh, many observers and scholars, both through the centuries and, and even today, um, have suggested, and it's, and it's fascinating to think, that Paul, uh, in all likelihood, received that seed, that the essential prayer of believers is these two words. He says, Abba, Father. It's actually... In the original language, it's Abba the Father, but it's translated normally into English as Abba Father. But uh, that there's a, there's a really strong likelihood that, that Paul received this as a handed down tradition which ultimately originated with the Lord's Prayer. At the Lord's Prayer, uh, Jesus taught his earliest followers to pray, Our Father who art in heaven. Um, and so many scholars have pointed out that, that what we have here from Paul really in just two words is a seed or an indication that Paul is already familiar with the tradition that we've received from Matthew and Luke in what we know of as the Lord's Prayer. But I just want to point out before we go um, into the detail, more detail on the Lord's Prayer, um, again, notice the we 
in Paul's words here. We don't know how to pray. Uh, and, then, and then in the other verse, verses, he says, and when we cry, Abba, Father. Um, there's a real sense of unity and commonness that is attached to prayer in general for the church, but maybe even especially for the Lord's Prayer. Since in many traditions, maybe even most traditions uh, of Christians around the world, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer that is recited together as believers in unity, in unison. Um, so there's a real sense in which the Lord's Prayer brings with it some extra muscle for punctuating our commonness, our togetherness, um, even in the midst of our diversity and even in the midst this morning of our distributed um, diversity. Um, right now, all around the world, and including here in America and in our own state, we're obviously in a very difficult time. This pandemic and the quarantine is affecting all of us, and apparently it's going to continue to affect all of us for, for quite some time going forward. And so, uh, in one sense, we really are sharing the same experience. In one sense, we really are in this together. We're hearing that phrase a lot. We're all in this together, and that's true. But I just want to say it's also important, I think, for us to recognize that simultaneously, it's also true that the impact of this season uh, is, really is different for all of us. Um, we were just having this discussion here this morning as we were getting ready for the, for the live stream um, about how, yes, all of our, for all of us, our lives have been changed. And yet beyond that, the change that, we've, that we are experiencing in our lives, it's, it's actually very different for, for each one of us. Um, some of us, you may be quarantined at home, uh, and along with that, maybe you're on the verge of going stir-crazy, stir cabin fever, uh, you know, uh, really eager and longing for, you know, real fellowship with someone outside your immediately fa uh, immediate family. Um, others of us, uh, we're still very much working every day, depending on the industry that, you're, that you work in, um, and some of us are not only working every day, but maybe your work has even been ratcheted up by the current circumstance. Certainly this has been true, at least for medical workers, first responders, uh, and, other, and other fields. And so they're, they're, we're all in this together, but there are differences uh, across various groups of us. And, and then I would say even furthermore, there's also, I just want to acknowledge, a broad diversity of perspective um, on this entire pandemic and our collective response to it. Um, there are those of us who may feel like this is all overblown and we need to get back to normal as soon as possible. There's that sentiment out there. Um, others of us um, have, you may have lost friends, family members, neighbors or coworkers to the illness caused by the virus. Um, and in your case, you are more than willing to continue making whatever sacrifices are necessary. Um, until the virus is clearly under control. So there's all kinds of diversity. Yes, we're in this together, but there's all kinds of diversity. We're not all experiencing the same reality on a day-to-day -day basis. And so I said all that to say, 
in this context then, I think the Lord's Prayer really does carry some extra, some extra resource for us to bring us together, to highlight and punctuate our shared, um, our shared communion together, our shared participation in the heart and vision of Jesus, which is really the point of where the Lord's Prayer goes. And so I think at least from that angle, this, this study um, carries with it some extra meaning for us, and certainly there's, there's more to it than that. Okay, so um, having said that, let's, let's get to it, the Lord's Prayer. Um, probably the, well, the most well-known prayer in the world. Uh, in fact, I'll just say it, not probably. It is. Check me on that. Um, uh, maybe the most beautiful poetic prayer uh, ever. But, but, but the Lord's Prayer is also, it's also a very strange prayer. Um, think about this, about the Lord's Prayer. Um, the Lord's Prayer is prayed by Christians, but it never mentions Christ. The Lord's Prayer is prayed in churches all over the world, and it never mentions church. The Lord's Prayer is, is prayed on Sundays, but it never mentions Sunday. Um, think about this too. The Lord's, the Lord's Prayer is prayed by all sorts of different Christians, different flavors and types and streams of Christians, right? The Lord's Prayer is prayed by fundamentalist Christians, but the Lord's Prayer never mentions the inerrancy of Scripture or the virgin birth or the bodily resurrection of Christ. Um, the Lord's Prayer is prayed by evangelical Christians, but it never mentions the gospel. The euangelion never mentions that. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is it's prayed by Pentecostals, but it never mentions the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Uh, the Lord's Prayer is, is prayed by Catholic Christians, but it never mentions the Pope or any of the sacraments. The Lord's Prayer is prayed by all sorts of Christians who split away from one another over all manner of doctrines held to be important, important enough for us to split from one another. Um, and yet the Lord's Prayer mentions none of those treasured doctrines. The Lord's Prayer is, is prayed by Christians who, who focus on uh, the next life that comes after this life, but the Lord's Prayer never mentions anything about the next life or an afterlife or life after death. The Lord's Prayer is prayed by Christians who insist upon the importance of heaven and hell issues. Um, but again, the Lord's Prayer never mentions going to heaven or going to hell when you die. Um, I guess I'm saying all that to say that this prayer, it's prayed by Christians who emphasize all manner of issues as being essential to the Christian faith. Uh, and yet this prayer mentions none, none, of, those, none of those issues. And I think we have to say, on the flip side, this is kind of the, 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 the flip side of what I'm suggesting. This prayer is also prayed by all manner of Christians who essentially ignore many of the issues that actually are mentioned in the prayer. Now, you might respond to that and say, well, you know, come on, Kenyon, that's, that's, that's all explained quite easily. I mean, after all, this is essentially a Jewish prayer uh, given to us by the very Jewish Jesus of Nazareth. 
to which I think I would have to respond, well, that just starts the questions about strangeness all over again from the very beginning, right? Because again, there's nothing quintessentially Jewish about this prayer either, right? There's no mention of Torah or temple or Sabbath or kosher. I mean, none of, none of those circumcision, none of those, none of those issues are present in the prayer. Um, so the observation stands. This prayer is both very familiar and very foreign to us all at the same time. So it's familiar in the sense that many of us know it by heart. Uh, and yet it's still foreign to us because simultaneously we continue to emphasize issues that are not present in the prayer while at least to a degree ignoring issues that are present in the prayer. And so this morning what I hope we're doing is beginning a fresh look at this prayer which is central to the teaching of Christ, central uh, to what it means to be a follower of Christ, and hopefully we can have a fresh look at this prayer and enjoy the riches that flow from it. So what is the Lord's Prayer then? If, if the Lord's Prayer isn't a Jewish prayer for Jews, and if it isn't a distinctly Christian prayer for Christians, then what is it? What is the Lord's Prayer? And I want to propose this answer to that question. Here's what I want to say. That the Lord's Prayer comes from the heart of Judaism. And because of the teaching of Christ, it has now been placed on the lips of Christians. But ultimately, the Lord's Prayer is for the consciousness of the entire world. You know, that is to say that while, it's, while the, the, the essences that come from the Lord's Prayer, the things that the Lord's Prayer highlights as matters of core concern, these are all found in the heart of Judaism. Um, and yet because of Christ, his teaching, we Christians know the prayer, we recite the prayer, and yet it's, the prayer itself is not exclusively Christian, and therefore I think we have to say something like, the Lord's Prayer is ultimately for the world, the entire world. And I want to say the same thing in a slightly different way. The Lord's Prayer then, it is this poetic prayer of transformational hope, and it is addressed to the entire world. I think that's a pretty good definition of the Lord's Prayer, and we're going to test that definition over the next few weeks as we continue uh, this study. Okay, so um, just a quick thought or two about prayer in general before we get to the Lord's Prayer in particular. Uh, in the Bible, there are many different forms of prayer. And, and you know, I'm sure that whoever makes this list, you could, you could put, you know, you might do your list differently. But, but I just want to point out really kind of a three-part list of forms of prayer. Uh, and that is, uh, in, in, in here I'm thinking of, in general, when you think about prayer in the context of the Bible, you think especially about the Psalms. It's a, the Psalms essentially it, that is a prayer book. And then you think about the prophets too. In the Psalms, people are speaking to God, more or less, generally. And in the prophets, this, the, here, in the prophets we, have, we have God speaking to us through the prophets. And so in, in, a, in a manner of speaking, this can be thought of as a, as a prayer manual um, as well. 
So, so, so the most common, uh, I think when we think about prayer, the most common form of prayer that we tend to think about, uh, we might call a prayer of petition, where in prayer we're, we're asking God for stuff. You know, we're asking God to do things, provide things, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's one form of prayer, certainly, petition. Um, and then secondly, we can think of a form of prayer as, as being uh, what we might call praise or thanksgiving. This is a legitimate and very common form of prayer. Of course, you find it in the Psalms uh, and in the prophets. Um, prayers of thanksgiving, either thanksgiving for, um, for the good things that God has done and the victories he's brought and the provision that he's provided, etc., or even prayers of praise and even thanksgiving in the midst of dark, difficult times, though the fig tree fails to blossom and there's no fruit on the vine, right? Uh, so, you have, so you have that. Um, but then, and I'm thinking of this kind of as a progression, maybe, maybe even, uh, I want to say, maybe even a progression of, of maturity in prayer. Um, so so we, could have, we could think of a prayer of petition, which is not, not a bad thing, but kind of a starting point. And then we could think of prayers of praise and thanksgiving, both in good times and bad. Uh, and then as a further step, we can, we, and we see this throughout Scripture, but we see prayer as participation. That is, prayer as an expression of, of Heavenly Father, we are here to participate in your agenda for the world. And you see this kind of prayer as well throughout the Bible, but especially uh, as we move forward, I'm thinking of the prayers of the Apostle Paul that he's given us in his letters. And again, the reason for saying all this is I'm going to make the case that, that this is what the Lord's Prayer is. As much as anything, the Lord's Prayer is a prayer of participation. It is a spoken um, confession of uh, heartfelt collaboration with Christ in God's ongoing agenda for the world. Um, you can think about this as kind of a, a rough dichotomy um, to help with this thinking. Um, it's the difference between faith and magic, right? Like um, a pretty good definition of magic is uh, magic is one's attempt to manipulate the deities through following certain protocols, right? I'm going to say these words. I'm going to do these actions. I'm going to perform, you know, these uh, steps or so on. And all of this I'm doing in the attempt to manipulate the deities. So the unseen gods who do whatever or don't do whatever, provide or whatever, that's magic, right? I'm going to say these words, do these things to manipulate the deities to get the outcome that I want. That's magic. Faith, on the other hand, could be defined as my willingness to be manipulated by the deity, and I'm going to say singular capital D, my willingness to be manipulated by the deity to fulfill his agenda for the world. See, see the difference there? So, so there's a real difference between faith and magic. And, and, and what you see when we, talk, when we define faith in that way, then this understanding of prayer as participation fits really well with that kind of description of what faith actually is. And, and you see this really, even, even throughout the Bible, you see um, what I'm going to call the priestly insistence upon protocol and ritual, right? So you have 
prescribed rituals for the ancient Jewish people of sacrifice and uh, temple observance and prayer and songs and protocols for how to have uh, worship services and all those things. And you see the priests sort of guarding all of that and insisting upon all of that. Like, we got to do all this, all this stuff. And then you have what we might call the prophetic critique, right? So, so that's where you get in the prophets and you get an old prophet like Amos. And apparently Amos was a, Amos was a farmer. So sometimes he's kind of rough around the edges. But so you can read a passage in Amos and he says, you know, man, uh, away with your songs, away with your festivals. I don't want any of that stuff, but let justice roll uh, like a river in righteousness like an unending stream, right? So you have this, this tension even in the Scripture itself. And it's almost, it's almost as if what the prophets are complaining about is they're saying, look, we should never, we should never get to the point where we think that just, just praying the prayer or just doing the ritual is what this God of ours really wants. No, what he really ultimately wants is, and I'm going to use the word again, participation. What he ultimately wants is for us to participate in his heart, his mission for the world, participation in his agenda. And the way the prophets summarize the agenda over and over again are with words like justice and righteousness. In Hebrew, it would be mishpat. Mishpat would be, um, in the Jewish understanding, mishpat would be a status where everything is in its proper place and everything is properly provided for and everything is functioning in the proper way. That would be mishpat. It would be, would be, and you could think of like in, a, in, a, in an agrarian society, which is family-based or even tribal-based. Um, so the, the context would be the family farm. And so mishpat would be a state in which the family farm and the household, everything is in its proper place, everything has proper provision, and everything is functioning in a proper way. So whether we're talking about the children, the aunts and uncles, the moms and dads, or we're talking about the animals and so on on the farm, mishpat is when everything's in the proper place, proper provision, uh, and proper functioning. That's mishpat. Well, the prophets come along and they attribute this to God. What God wants is mishpat in his world. He wants shalom. He wants peace. He wants everything to be in its proper place and functioning properly. This is the heart of God. The absence of mishpat is the impetus for um, what the prophets call righteousness. And that, you know, in English, that gets a little bit tricky because we sometimes think of righteousness as um, like personal virtue. But for the prophets, that's not, that's not what they mean. What, what they mean is um, righteousness is the activity that moves reality toward mishpat. So righteousness in the prophetic understanding is the right-wising of the world. So, so, so righteousness is the muscular activity that moves things toward a place of, of, uh, of mishpat. That's, that's the idea. So... Um, so you see this in, in the prophets. And so when you, when you allow the prophets to speak to this conversation about what is prayer, well, again, you get back to this idea of participation in the agenda of God. And so I take all that together. And here's what I want to say. Um, I think a very good way to think about prayer is that ultimately prayer is about alignment. That is to say that as we engage in intentional prayer, and I'm speaking here, and again, I'm going to say it this way, not to, but, but 
when we begin to think of prayer in a, in a more developed, mature kind of way, the essence then of prayer becomes alignment. That is, when we engage in prayer, we are aligning ourselves with the heart of God. It's kind of like... Um, it's kind of like a tuning fork. I don't know if you've ever seen a tuning fork, but when I was a kid, my first guitar lesson, I'd never seen one, didn't know what, it, didn't know what a tuning fork was. But when I was about 11 or 12 years old, I had my very first guitar lesson and uh, didn't know what to expect. And this really nice lady who was teaching my guitar lessons, uh, one of the first lessons, well, actually the first lesson that she gave me, she pulled out a tuning fork, told me what it was, and taught me, began to teach me how to use a tuning fork to tune the guitar right? So she took this tuning fork and you, you pop it on your knee and it makes a perfect pitch. In this case, it was um, like, like A, A below middle C, boom, 440 hertz. Uh, and so you hit, and, and then in a guitar, you tune the fifth string to, to A and then you tune all the other strings relative to that string. And that's how I learned to to tune a guitar. These days, we don't do that anymore. We use these digital tuners, and you don't even hear anything most of the time when you tune a guitar. But back in the day, man, you know, we tune it with a tuning fork. You could actually actually hear something. Well, that's, that's similar to, I think, how prayer in its mature form functions in our lives. In prayer, and certainly in the case of the Lord's Prayer, we are tuning ourselves to the tune of Christ. The music of Jesus is playing throughout the Lord's Prayer. And as we recite this prayer and allow it to capture our imagination, we are realigning ourselves, we are retuning ourselves with the heart and passion of Jesus. And so I want to say then, the Lord's Prayer, it is this invitation for us to participate in what matters most to Jesus. It is this enduring poetic prayer that aligns our hearts and minds with the heart of God for the world. And again, the Lord's Prayer, I think, is striking both for what's not in it and for what is in it. What's not in it, there's no mention of the afterlife. There's no mention of material success or prosperity. There's no mention of right beliefs in the Lord's Prayer. <clears throat> there's no mention of going to heaven or hell when you die. None of those things are in it. So, what is in it? <laughs> what is in the Lord's Prayer? Here we go. Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning with verse 9. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And don't bring us into the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. This morning, what I want to do is just quickly go through the major lines of this prayer. And then in the coming weeks, we're going to take some time with each of them. So what is in the Lord's Prayer? Well, first, in the Lord's Prayer, we, we address God as our Father, and many scholars have said probably the word that Jesus used here was Abba, which is probably where Paul got that line that we find in both Romans and Galatians. Um, Abba would be something like, um, it, it would be the way that in Hebrew culture a young child would address her father, Abba, or like something like dear father, maybe even something like daddy, although some scholars would 
would disagree with that, but it's something like that. It's, the point is, it's, this is family. This is intimacy with God. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're approaching God with that kind of childlike, familiar intimacy. That's the idea. Um, he says, hallowed be your name. Other translations say, make your name holy. Now, we're going to talk about this um, this morning as we conclude, but let me just say that it's not quite clear from the, from the actual translation as to whether what's intended here is um, what G- maybe Jesus is saying that it's important for us that we revere your name, like in a worship kind of, kind of way. But, but the language itself, what it really says is, Father, you make your name holy, which, which, gives, us, which gives us kind of some like, what? Like, what does that actually mean? And I'm going to take a stab at that here in just a moment. Um, and then the next line, your kingdom come. Now, this obviously, this is the heart of the message and ministry of Jesus. I mean, this is Jesus' thing. Your kingdom come. And it's just, this is, this is the core of Jesus' message. This is what Jesus was passionate about. Your, Father, we want your kingdom to come. We want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so we see here finally, and again, this comes from our appreciation for the fact that this is poetry, your kingdom to come, your will be done on earth as in heaven. So kingdom come on earth as in heaven and will be done on earth as in heaven. Someone has said, well, obviously, the reason we would want God's kingdom to come on earth and the reason we would want God's will to be done on earth is because earth is where the problems are. Uh, The problems aren't in heaven. Now, let me just say real briefly here, um, let me just kind of ask like an obvious question, but um, why would we pray for God's will to be done? Well, the answer is because God's will is better than what's currently going on around here. That's why. Um, And that means, here's what that means, that means that some of the stuff going on around here is not God's will. Now, we have something very important, everybody. And I just want to say, listen, please don't get sucked into the goofy idea that everything that happens has its cause in God. Can we please get past that? Um, this is a common belief among pseudo-pious folk, uh, among the shade tree religion ilk. Um, but Jesus simply wouldn't recognize such a notion. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray, God, we want your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven, which is to say some of this stuff going on is not God's will, right? Right? So we want God's will to be done because God's will is better than what's currently going on around here. Does everybody hear what I'm saying? The virus is not God's doing. The healing of the virus is God's doing. That's God's will. God's will is for people to be healthy and at peace and at mishpat. That's God's will. So Jesus says for us to pray God's will be done on earth as in heaven. Um. Now, this is essentially, this is the midpoint of the prayer, all right? So, so far we've got Father, name, kingdom, will. Let's just say we've got Father, kingdom, and will. These are the kind of the big, the big three 
in the first of the prayer. And we've already seen one instance of poetic uh, form. Your kingdom come, your will be done. In poetry, this is known as parallelism. So, and this would be an example of synonymous parallelism, which, are, which is basically two different ways of saying essentially the same thing or more or less the same thing. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Two ways of saying the same thing. There's more parallelism in the Lord's Prayer. We're about to come up to one where later we're going to have, uh, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That would be another example of parallelism. But here, this would be antithetical parallelism that we'll get to in just a moment. Um, and I said all that to say, what if, and I want you to consider this before we do the second half, what if this entire prayer is an instance of poetic parallelism? What if, and as we go through this, consider it, please. What if, what if the first triad, Father, Kingdom, and Will, stands in parallel with the second half, which you're going to see is bread, debt, and temptation? What if this entire prayer can be thought of as parallelism in total? What if, what if what Jesus is inviting us to pray following about bread, debt, and temptation is parallel, stands in parallel to Father making his name holy and kingdom and will? I want you to consider that as we look at the second half. So here we go. Give us this day our daily bread. Um, Historically speaking, for Jesus' original audience, food was a pressing, urgent matter. Most people in Jesus' culture, he was a peasant from Galilee, most, most of those people lived a subsistence life, uh, and the question of the next meal was a very real question. So give us this day our daily bread. This is, we're talking about a survival issue. And so I just want to suggest that God's kingdom is about food. That, that when we pray for the kingdom of God to come, we're, we're thinking of issues that are that pressing and that practical and that earthy and that real. That God's kingdom involves no one being hungry. God's kingdom involves no one being lonely. God's kingdom involves no one being without shelter, without clothing. That's the kingdom of God. And so give us this day our daily bread. And then debt. Here's what he says. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Now, this is a funny part, depending on the tradition you grew up, grew up in. Sometimes you hear this prayer. Uh, the word used here is trespasses. Sometimes the word here is used debts, and we're choosing uh, debt. Um, and, I mean, for sure, trespasses, forgive us our, so we're thinking sins, Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. That's certainly golden and terrific. Um, but again, a lot of scholars are going to say that Jesus probably used the word debt, and he was probably thinking about actual debt. Um, that in, in that culture, in that time and place, failure to repay debt could lead to prison, enslavement. Um, it would destroy the lives of, of the peasant the peasant class, many lives were destroyed by debt. And so seen in that light then, um, 
what Jesus is saying is actually subversive to their entire way that their society was organized, right? And even today, it's still true. I mean, although maybe harder to recognize, but the world is still run on the economy of debt. Like, you owe me, right? People rule over one another on the basis of various forms of indebtedness, whether financial indebtedness or military indebtedness or even, even a debt of kindness, right? Like, you owe me in some, in some kind of way. You owe me, and now it's time to pay up. Um, and if you don't pay up, then we have a problem. See, I have the right to expect repayment. And if you don't repay me, then you have violated what is rightly mine. And that gives me then the full go-ahead to proceed with getting from you what is rightly mine. I mean, this is the way the world works. It works based on debt, all forms, all manner of debt. And so Jesus here, in this line in the Lord's Prayer, he's inviting us into an entirely alternative reality. What's the, what's the opposite of an economy of debt and indebtedness? Well, in a word, it's the economy of grace. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. It's a whole new normal. And then finally, and don't bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. Now, we're going to spend some time in a future uh, study on this particular line. Um, and I just want to say that this line has been understood in various uh, ways. But briefly, let me say, I think it helps us to see this as an instance of parallelism, as I said before. In this case, antithetical parallelism. Think about it. Think about it like this. Whatever is meant by the time of trial or temptation, depending on the translation, it is in contrast with the second half of this, of this parallelism. It's in contrast with being rescued by God from evil or from the evil one. See, so in other sense, it's saying what we don't want is this time of trial or temptation. Instead, what we do want is to be rescued by God from evil. Okay, now, I think that's helpful because... Whatever it is that's meant by the time of trial, it stands in contrast to being rescued by God. So apparently then we could say, at at a minimum, we can say that what's meant by the phrase the time of trial is some form of self-rescue, right? So we don't want to be brought to the place of temptation or time of trial. Instead, we want to be rescued by, by you. We don't want to be brought to the verge of self-rescue. Instead, we want to be rescued by you. Now here, it's helpful to recognize that the word used here, time of trial or translated temptation, it's the very same word used to describe the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, right? And think about it. In every instance of the temptations of, that Jesus faced, in essence, what they all had in common was they were invitations for Jesus to rescue himself, to take matters into his own hands. And in every case, the way that Jesus successfully rejected the temptation was to tether himself to rugged trust in God, let's just say. And, and you can go back and read the temptations specifically. Um, so, bread, debt, and temptation. What do we make of these three 
these three bullets in the second half of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, it's a prayer for enough for everybody. Give us this day our daily bread. Enough for everybody. It's a prayer for an economy of grace rather than the economy of you owe me. And it's a prayer for rugged trust in God rather than self-rescue, etc. Now, I just want to say, that's a pretty good portrait of the kingdom of God. Imagine a reality of enoughness for everybody, an economy of grace and forgiveness as opposed to you owe me and pay up, etc. And a reality of rugged trust in God rather than our own self-rescue efforts driving us mad, right? That's a pretty good definition of the kingdom of God. Now, before we conclude, um, I just want to go back to that opening line as I indicated. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or some translations have it, as awkward as it is for us to understand, some translations have it. Our Father in heaven, make your name holy. Which is really awkward. Because like, what do we do with that? But that's probably closer to literal. Um, well, I think this image from Hebrew culture helps. That essentially what Jesus appears to be saying is, Father, we are acknowledging you like, like a Hebrew householder. And in your case, you're the householder of the entire world. And we want you to make your name holy. We want you to make it so that your name is hallowed. Now, question. How is it that a householder's name is held in high regard? And here I'm talking about a, a human householder. Well, it goes back to the idea of mishpat. You, 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 you determine... You determine the degree of regard uh, for which you hold the householder by the condition of his household. Are the, are the children and grandchildren and nieces and nephews, are they provided for? Are they well cared for? Are the animals taken care of? Is everything in this household, on this family farm, is it, is it in its proper place, uh, have its proper provision and functioning in the proper way? And, and based on your observation of those factors, then your assessment of the householder is determined based on that assessment. And so Jesus is essentially saying he's, he's bringing that image right to the top level of the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, our Father, our, we global, we, we global people, we call upon you, our Father in heaven, and we want you to make your name holy. We want you to make it so that your name is revered in all the earth. How? By your kingdom coming everywhere to everyone. By your will being done everywhere for everyone. This prayer, everybody, is an invitation for us to enter into, like a tuning fork, to enter into um, seeing what Jesus sees and being passionate about what Jesus is passionate about. And he has given us a very condensed summary of everything that he invested his life in. So this morning as we close, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer with me. I trust that uh, the Lord's Prayer will be in uh, the comment section in the feed. Um, or if you have your Bible or can pull out, you can Google it um, really quickly. I have it from the New Revised Standard Version. 
And so that's what we're going to do. And by the way, we're going to, we're going to add the, the ending riff, yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. That's not, that doesn't appear in some of the more modern translations in the Bible. Many scholars believe that that was added later. Um, but we're going to include it because we like the way it ends, okay? All right, so here we go. Let's, uh, let's pray this ancient prayer together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us to the time of trial, but rescue us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. God bless you. We love you. We miss you. We miss being together and look forward to being together again soon. All right? Keep in touch. We love you. Uh, Mishpat would be spelled M-I-S-H-P-A-T. Mishpat. Yes. Great. Any other questions? That's good. Okay. And it's usually translated justice in English, mishpat. Usually translated justice. Uh, Yeah. So very cool. All right. Bless you. We'll see you soon. What do y'all want to do? Yes. Jesus, Jesus believes that it can be. He believes that it can be. And so we believe that it can be.